0: So this Bible verse can be found in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, and that is on page 1205 in your Bibles. The certainty of God's promise. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what he was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek.
1: Well, thank you, Thomas, for reading that to us. It's not a particularly easy bit of the Bible, is it? Let's pray for God's help before we look at it again. We thank you for that confidence we can have that your word is living and enduring. We thank you for generation after generation trusting your promises and proving them to be true. And we pray that you would help us tonight to hear your voice and to believe your promise and to find it to be, as it says here, an anchor for the soul. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Here's a statement. I wonder what you make of it. What what do you think when somebody says, I am sure that I'm going to heaven? I wonder what your reaction to that statement would be if you heard somebody just say that in conversation. You might think that that person is smug, complacent, arrogant. Or maybe you might think, well, maybe they're just suffering from wishful thinking. It's very striking how people who have little time for talk of heaven and hell ordinarily in life become vaguely optimistic when a relative dies that all will be well for them now. I don't know if you know about um, the sign language that they have in horse racing, the sort of betting agents that the horse racers use. There's a story about the racecourse bookie who had died and at the funeral all his betting colleagues had turned out in sympathy. And his best friend was a bookie as well and he liked the vicar's sermon because it said what a good bloke the man had been. But the friend was a bit scandalised a moment later on when the vicar prayed and did the sign of the cross. Appalling, he said afterwards. He prays, may his soul forever rest in peace, and then he only gives him betting odds of 100 to 1 against. (laughs) I've no idea at all whether in reality the sign of the cross in the bookie's sign language, tic-tac-toe, really does correspond to 100 to 1 against. There you go. But that assumption... That so we've got a reasonable chance of going to heaven is one I've often noticed at funerals. People are usually confident that their relatives have got a better chance than 100 to 1. And for many people, it's usually based on how they think about themselves. If they consider that they've lived a pretty good life, they assume that they'll manage the required pass mark and that God will accept them. But what if you've, you're someone who's begun to understand that a God who is morally perfect and holy demands 100% that nothing less will do? How can anyone say, I'm sure I'm going to heaven? Well, the answer in scripture is that if someone says that, that thinking that their own performance is good enough, then they are woefully wrong. But that I can have that confidence, in fact I should have that confidence, if I base it not on myself, but on God, on what he's said and on what he's done. If I'm relying on myself, I may well be very uncertain, but I can be sure if I'm relying on him. Now we're going to see that in our Bible passage today, and maybe that's a relief to you. If you were here last week, we looked at... uh, A clear note of warning in the passage there. Well, we've got encouragement in these verses this week. Pastorally, we all need both warning and encouragement regularly. And God's word sounds both those notes pretty frequently. Hebrews, this letter we're looking at at the moment, seems to alternate between them. Warning, encouragement, warning, encouragement. And I suppose temperamentally, There is something of a spectrum. So some of us are temperamentally more anxious. um, Maybe we've got bouts of low self-esteem. And we particularly need to hear words of assurance that scripture addresses to us. Others of us are brimful with confidence and maybe need to be warned of complacency. Uh, Most of us probably need to hear both notes. One moment. I may be anxious and need comforting, and only seconds later I take that comfort and abuse it by being cocky, as if my salvation wasn't particularly precious. And I need warning then, because if I treat Jesus' death lightly, it raises questions as to whether I've really taken what he did into my life at all. So you get that movement, warning, encouragement, warning, encouragement, again and again in this letter you want an illustration i sort of kept this back from last week imagine we're threading our way across a treacherous swamp and in front of us we have a guide who knows the way across the swamp and he looks back towards us with words of encouragement don't be frightened he says just look at me and i'll get you across safely and maybe we glance at the swamp and are frightened and the guide says "No, no no trust me i know the way Or maybe we begin to imagine we're fine on our own, only to be jolted back to reality as the guide shouts back, watch out, what do you think you're doing? Stay close to me. And that's sort of how Hebrews has been speaking to us week by week, if you look back to the stuff we had before we restarted the series. Because Jesus is God's final word, and because he's provided purification for sins, And he's planted the human flag in heaven. I can be confident. We can be confident. Isn't that a message we need with all the uncertainty in our world at the moment? We can have confidence. There is security. But can I relax? Well, no, says Hebrews. Don't take your eyes off Jesus for a moment. We heard in chapter 4 that the word of God is living, and active, and God needs to emphasize both these warnings, warn, both these messages, warnings and encouragements regularly to all of us, depending on our situations. The Bible isn't just a set of theoretical answers to theoretical questions, it's a living word to living people calling us today to hear and respond, to trust and obey. So warnings predominated last week, actually even then there was encouragement along the way, wasn't there? But we turn today from the warnings of last week to assurances and to two reasons why the believer can be absolutely sure that they're going to heaven. And the first reason is this, we have a certain promise. So we start in verse 13 and the writer there turns to an Old Testament example of somebody who discovered this, Abraham. Let me reread verses 13 to 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised If you think God's promise of heaven is hard to believe, then remember that the promise to Abraham was beyond all human possibility as well. I'm being a bit imaginative, but I picture him and Sarah walking down the corridor from the geriatric ward of the hospital to the maternity wing. And it should never have happened. Everybody was laughing, including Sarah. But verse 15, after waiting patiently, Abraham received What was promised? God did what he said and gave him a son. Except the promise wasn't only for one son, but for many descendants. And God actually reiterated that promise later on after Abraham had offered his very special son Isaac for sacrifice. That's the episode which Hebrews is referring to here. So let me read from that account back in Genesis God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. It's from Genesis chapter 22. So could... God possibly deliver on the promise? Well, yes, if he'd made good on one promise, which was humanly speaking impossible, giving the son Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, of course he can deliver on another promise. One son, many descendants, including even Gentiles, no problem. Now, God's promise on its own is enough, and yet he offers more. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that I'll surely bless you and make your descendants numerous. Back in Hebrews 6, uh, he explains that. Look at verse 16. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So when people want to stress the validity of their promise, they pick out something of great value. In our courts, it's the Bible. You swear on the Bible. You swear on something great and valuable, as if to say, if the Bible could ever be discredited, then you can discredit what I'm saying. And when I take that oath, I'm saying that to the degree that we all value the Bible, to that same degree you can rely on my word, on my evidence. Now look at why God took his oath in verse 17. God did this, sorry, verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Just to explain, I think the two unchangeable things he mentions there are the promise itself and then the act of swearing by himself. As I said, the promise on its own was enough. God had shown that already. But to put an end to all argument, he swore by himself as well. And please notice, that wasn't just to encourage Abraham. It was to encourage us. The heirs of the promise. Verse 17, Christians, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. Verse 18, this is amazing, isn't it? God had us in mind as well as Abraham when he made that promise back in Genesis. God was thinking, I want to give my people great encouragement when they look at Hebrews chapter 6 on September the 15th, 2019. He was thinking that, if it doesn't blow your mind to think it, uh, way back in Genesis 22. So he says, I'll add an extra oath onto the promise to show them how much I guarantee my promise. Hmm, What shall I swear by? Well, I could swear by the sun and the moon. They're great. I could swear by my people because I value them as the apple of my eye. I could swear by all the angels of heaven. They're resplendent in glory. So all of those things are valuable. He could have sworn by them. But no, it's as if God is saying, none of them is actually great enough to give the level of encouragement I want my people to have. One reality exists whom God values higher than anything or anyone else. Only one being whose worthiness and dignity and greatness and majesty is more precious than everything else combined, Uh, 10,000 times more valuable if you think about it, it's God himself. So God swears by himself. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, it says. If he could have gone higher, he would have gone higher. Why? Well, because he longs to give us encouragement in our hope great encouragement because he means for us to have as much confidence in him as we possibly can if he's promised to bless Abraham's believing descendants there's no way they can not be blessed his word is actually an expression of himself and he is that committed to it God keeps his promises every single one of them I read recently about a a little man many years ago who was called Mr. Faulkner, and he worked as a missionary to the sailors at Port Chalmers in New Zealand. Well, one time he had just finished a service for the seamen, uh, which was held in a large loft used to store all the ship's sails. And a young sailor called Frank Bullen stayed behind to talk with him. Frank explained that he did believe, and he prayed a prayer of commitment to to Jesus as his Saviour and Lord, but he felt that no obvious change had happened. And he felt no assurance that he'd been accepted by God. And Mr. Faulkner read him some words spoken by Jesus. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life, John five twenty four. Then he explained, he said, You're waiting for the witness of your feelings to the truth of him who is himself the truth. You dare not take him at his word unless your feelings, which are subject to a thousand changes a day, corroborate it. You must believe him in spite of your feelings and act accordingly. Well, Anyway, Frank Bullen recorded many years later, In a moment, the hidden mystery was made clear to me. And I said quietly, I see, sir. It's the credibility of God against the witness of my feelings. Well, then I believe God. I love the little phrase we've had in Hebrews 6 about how an oath puts an end to all argument. And I think that's what that little story demonstrates Every time a murmur rises in your heart that you can't really be sure about God's promise, come back to God's oath because that puts an end to all argument. I think we've had challenges as we've gone through Hebrews that we ought to feed our assurance by learning the promises of God. We've certainly sung that song enough times to encourage us in that. But this passage of the Bible concurs. God commits himself to his word. He would stop being God before stepping back from honoring any promise of his. So feed your confidence with God's promises. We've got a certain promise and that's our first basis of assurance. Then the second I'm going to deal with more briefly, it's this. We have a perfect priest. So a certain promise and a perfect priest. Let me read 19 to 20 again. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is pretty different from the way we usually use the word hope, isn't it? For us, hope often expresses something uncertain. So you might be thinking to yourself at the moment, I hope this sermon is going to end soon. I mean, you hope so, but you don't know so. <laughs> it might, it might not. It's that sort of unpredictability that makes church so exciting, isn't it? Don't you think? <laughs> you see, there's nothing vague or uncertain about this hope. He says it's an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. whole point of an anchor is that it's undisturbed by outward influences. It's fixed, whatever the conditions of the sea. I don't know what waves are knocking your soul around at the moment, whether people here are having emotional storms, or you're buffeted by hostility at school, or at work, or at home, or you're just fearful about what some new situation you're about to face is going to bring, or if you're just plain discouraged. But let me just say this is not cheap talk here. We have an anchor for the soul, a sure hope. On what basis, you might ask? Answer here, because Jesus, our high priest, has entered heaven on our behalf. And this priest is quite different from any other priest before him. You know the mention of the curtain is meant to make that point. Remember, the the temple in Jerusalem had that curtain. It was there to mark off the place in which God's presence was symbolically located. So once a year, once a year only, the high priest could go within the curtain to offer a sacrifice. And of course, every time they came back out again, every year it was the same. That was a little proof that the temple was only a symbol of God's presence and the sacrifices those priests offered were only symbols of better sacrifices that would come one day. Well, Jesus offered that better sacrifice when he died on the cross. So it's significant that communion later on, we're not reenacting Jesus' sacrifice. We're simply remembering it. And that is what happens moment by moment in heaven as well. When Jesus ascended to heaven he took with him his nail-pierced hands and he took them literally into the presence of his father. And that's where he is to this day. So I love the way it says he has entered on our behalf. He has us on his mind this moment in heaven. On his lips, I guess, in fact. Uh, We'll see in chapter 7 that his ministry as our high priest includes him interceding for us. Pleading that what he did for us when he died must secure our pardon completely. And that's amazing. I wonder if you realize that Jesus never, ever forgets you. I'm a sort of butterfly brain. I go out of church in five minutes' time, easy for me to forget Jesus. He never, ever forgets me. He never, ever forgets you if you're a follower of his. He can't get you out of his mind and you're the subject of a conversation in heaven right now. If, if Jesus was tucked away in the side chapel at the moment, I guess most of us couldn't see him if he, if he were there. But we might overhear him pouring out his heart for us now. And I guess if we could overhear him doing so, we'd never doubt our safety and security again. Well, don't worry that you can't actually hear him. The distance makes no difference at all. He is interceding for us in heaven. And as our forerunner, he has cleared the way for us to follow where he has gone before. He's a priest like no other. We've got a perfect priest. So what about that statement with which we began? I'm sure I'm going to heaven. As I said, it would be arrogant if it relied any way on us but not if my confidence is based elsewhere. And these verses give us two secure bases for assurance. We've got a certain promise and we have a perfect priest. Now, how are we meant to apply this? Well, if you're a Christian, there's nothing for you to do. Not here. There are no commands for us to obey. But God is wanting you to be greatly encouraged. That's what verse 18 says. This hope should encourage us. I pulled a book off our shelves at home this last week, which we were given a few years ago. This is a book by Fiona Fletcher's grandmother, Edith Schaefer. I think Susu first read this book 30-plus years ago, but um, now we have a signed copy uh, from the author. And I want to read to you what Edith wrote before she died a couple of years ago. This is in very faltering script to dear Susu, I do pray that you enjoy teaching this book as much as I enjoyed writing it. I am now 92 years old, uh, so cannot do all the things I used to do. But when we walk together in the heavenly city, we will have our new bodies. What a glorious time is ahead of us. With love in him, Edith Savile Schaefer. So, frail handwriting in there, but a firm hope, I'm sure, I'm going to heaven. And of course, she got there ahead of us. As she knows the reality she was writing about in the front of that book. She was greatly encouraged then by the hope she had. And, big surprise, she was an encouragement to others too. And I trust that we will use that encouragement, if we have it, to encourage others. What if you're not a Christian? I wonder if you noticed how Christians are described in verse 18. They are people who have fled to take hold of the hope God offers. And let me just say as I close, nothing could be more urgent for you if you've never done that. To flee headlong from bogus hopes or indeed from your fears to the only secure future that there is to pray even today for God to give you real solid hope to make your escape from the sinking ship of this world and its world order which will soon disappear and to grab hold of the lifeline by praying to God and accepting his offer of an eternal future where the promises of God are fulfilled forever and ever. Now normally I'd end in prayer. We're going to do something slightly different Tonight and listen to a version of this song. It'll go up on the screen so you can see the words, because sometimes I don't pick up the words in a song when it's just audio. So you've got words and music, uh, a sort of rerun of the passage we've had from the Bible. I think it even goes back into last week's um, verses as well. But the idea would be for as we listen to God's word again, for you, Christian or non Christian. (laughs) to come afresh personally to Christ and to take hold of the hope that he's offering us you okay?
2: though we speak in this way I believe the better things will come if you You have shown yourself faithful in the past, and I know that faith will last. Oh, don't let go of the promise of God, He's never going to let you down. He's never going to let you down. No, if you just hold on to His word, if you hold on. would come true
1: I've mentioned those uh, new settings of the Book of Hebrews that Salos have uh, come up with. I think you can easily track them down on Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon if you're interested in following the uh, the series in Hebrews yourself uh, according to that music. Let me pray. We're going to have communion together now, and. Uh, Obviously, we invite to the Lord's table all who know and love the Lord Jesus. The bread and the wine will come to you. But let me lead us in prayer um, before we share them together. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, in your tender mercy, you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to rescue us. He made there a full and perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He commands us to share bread and wine in memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear our prayer, merciful Father, that we who receive this bread and wine to remember his death and suffering may be partakers of his body and blood. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me.
0: Amen.